So are you enjoying our Romans time? I hope so. Uh, the thing about it is, is I, f I find the Word of God to be so rich that once we finish Romans, you know what? We could go back and start Romans all over again <laughs> and go all the way back through it. And when we finished it that time, we could do it all over again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The deeper you go, the longer you're in it, the more you, you dig in, in the, the Word here and you find those golden nuggets, those golden treasures that God has hidden everywhere, you find there are just more and more and more of them. And uh, I just, I've really enjoyed my time studying for this sermon series. It's really ch challenged me in all kinds of ways. Uh, but just remember this morning as we're beginning, we are going to be in, in chapter 6 of Romans. And uh, we're going to begin this morning with, chat, with uh, uh, verse 16 in just a minute. Uh, but let's not forget the things that we've learned so far. And one of those is this. Remember, I've mentioned that there actually are two truths that every Christian needs to be uh, aware of. And, and two truths about us in regard to sin that we always have to keep in our mind. Because it'll have everything to do with the, the way we approach just about everything we do as a Christian. One of those is this, as, as we've saved, prayed already this morning, that is this, there's a real sense in which when Christ died, our sin died right along with him. That our sin is forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. He's lived for us, he's lived that perfect life on our behalf, and when he died, his righteousness was imputed to us. Which means this, that we are received into the kingdom of God, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. And just remember that perfect righteousness is the key to heaven. To get into heaven, there's only one way, there's only one key that fits the gate, and that's perfect righteousness. And no mortal man is, or, or woman is able, capable of doing that himself. No one is. We've all sinned, and we've all have fallen very short of the kingdom of God. But as believers today, we sit here, and I don't want think people for us to even think that we're just kind of schizophrenic, because that's not even a good explanation of the way things are. But the truth is this, is that, that our sin died with Christ on the cross, but at the same time it still lives and breathes within us. And this is one of the main things that, uh, that Romans, Paul in Romans addresses, is what do we do about that? How do we deal with that circumstance? And if you took all of, all of what Paul talks about in this book out of that whole thing, you're going to find that Romans would be a whole lot smaller than it is because a lot of it has to do with addressing that particular thing, those particular issues. Unfortunately, very often, people don't keep those two things in mind. They focus on one and either completely ignore the other one or they minimize the other one. But we have to always remember those two things. Because if you don't, you will fall into heresy. If you only focus on the idea that Christ has died for me and my sins have been completely forgiven, it's easy for you to begin to, to, to live what's called antinomianism, and that's the belief that the law of God ha no longer has any application to you at all. That you're saved, period, and that's all that matters. It doesn't matter how you live your life. 
You're going to heaven. That's your ticket to heaven. End of story. Don't talk about the law of God to me. Don't tell me that God still, even yet, has expectations for me and for my life. The other thing is this is sometimes people oversize the role that sin has even now in our lives. They focus almost exclusively on that. And that kind of thinking very easily leads to fatalism. The idea that, even, that sin lives within me and I've got to put that sin to death and if I don't put it to death, I'm not going to heaven and so on and so on and so on and so on. So what I'm saying here, guys, is this, is you have to have both of those in, in the picture. But let me just say this. It's not a balanced thing. It's not that you do half of one and half of the other one. Or you do one half the time and you do the other half the time. Out of the two, there is one that, that pales in importance above the other one. And that's the first. That is that Christ has died for me. And through his life, in his death, in his resurrection, what he accomplished. He didn't have, need to accomplish any of those things for himself. He already had all of those things. He accomplished those things for me. Guilt is a very poor motivator. And very often Christians use guilt to try to motivate people to do things they think they need to do. Guilt can never drive us. What we're talking about here, guys and gals, is this is because we're saved by grace, the driving force behind all of it ought to be appreciation, not guilt. But I live for Christ because I appreciate what he has done. I'm thankful. I'm praising him in my life for what he has done for me. That's my motivation. And Paul, and it's through, this, it's through this letter, he addresses all of these questions. He knows, he anticipates these questions that people are going to be asking or, or, or wrongful conclusions they might come to based upon what he just said. In the first verse of this chapter, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that great might increase? Can you imagine anyone have the wrong understanding that, 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 that grace is a good thing and therefore a way for me to get more of the good thing is to just go out and sin more? And Paul says that that may be anathema. May it never be. God forbid that anyone would ever come to that conclusion based upon what I just said. Okay, beginning with verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. Next anticipated question, or, or wrongful conclusion that some people might come to. What then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? In other words, he's, he, he's, he's addressing the issue here where some people are going to draw the conclusion that grace actually gives us a license to sin freely. To just go out and do whatever we want. We're saved by grace. That's all that matters. So I can live my life in any manner that I want to. I can do whatever I want to do. It has set me free. 
I'm free from the bondage of sin absolutely, completely. That means I can just go out and do anything I want to do. And how does Paul answer that one? May it never be. God forbid that anyone would come to that conclusion about what I've just said. Verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It would be very hard to imagine... What it would be like to, let's just say you live in some Central African country. One day, you're just minding your own business. Maybe you're a child, maybe you're a grown-up, maybe you're a man, maybe you're a woman. But people come along and they throw chains on you and they put you in shackles. They make you a slave. Sounds very barbaric, doesn't it? You may not realize it, but statistically you can show that there are more slaves in the world today than there ever have been at one time in history. You and I don't really connect with that because it was not what we experienced here in this good old U.S. of A. where we have all these freedoms and rights and things like that and stuff like that does not happen any longer, even though for a time it did. But just for a minute, put yourself in the shoes of that person they have their life, they have their family, they have their work, they have their home, they have their this, they have their that. And someone comes along just because they think they, I don't know what, how they would ever figure out they, have, they ha might have the right to do it. And they throw chains on you and they make you into a slave. I love St. Augustine. It's one of our favorite places to go. Lori and I, usually, if we're not here on a particular Sunday, there's a very good chance we're in St. Augustine. I have some roots there. My grandparents used to have a house down at Flagler Beach, and so we spent a lot of time in St. Augustine when I was a kid. Uh, but it, you may not be that familiar with it, but you, know, you come over the Bridge of the Lions, and there's this big square that's right there. Do you know what that used to be? That used to be the slave market in St. Augustine, where people were brought and they were sold to other people. 
It's really hard to imagine what it's one of those things I don't think we can even get an inkling of what it's like without actually experiencing that ourselves. So there's a sense in which we don't understand slavery like some people do, but there's at the same time there's a sense in which we all know what it's like to be a slave. I don't think anyone in this room would conclude that they always do the right thing, they always think the right thing, they always say the right thing. And if you conclude that about yourself, I'd say you probably need to reevaluate yourself, and unless you get things straight, you're in big trouble. See, what Paul does here is this, is before we were believers, it wasn't that we were just under the power of sin, we were slaves to sin. That an unbeliever in everything that they do, there is an element of sin in it. And very often it's the primary element. Paul is encouraging us to remember this always. And I said that this is the most important of those two two truths that we've talked about. And that is that we remember that there's a sense in which we truly are dead to sin. We are no longer slaves of sin. At the time of our conversion, our disposition towards sin changes. When the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. We're not the same person that we were before. There's a real change that takes place in us. And the change is this. is Up to that time, we were literally slaves to sin. But now, Paul describes us as being slaves to to righteousness. In other words, slaves to doing what God determined or God determines is right and staying away from the things that God has determined are wrong. Living our life in a manner that truly honors what Christ has done for us and glorifies him. How often do you even think about this? I mean, do you picture yourself as someone who is a slave to righteousness? I doubt it. But do you understand that what we're, we're, we're being told here is that is really how we need to look upon ourselves? Slaves do what their master tells them to do. They don't have any option. Now, very often we have the mindset, well, God told me to do that, but, you know, he's forgiven me and he loves me and all that kind of stuff. It's not going to be any big deal if I don't. Paul is going to bring things to a head in in Romans chapter 8 where he says this. He says, unless you are putting to death the deeds of the body, unless you are actively, that is you, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's not God, 
it's all you, unless you are involved in putting sin to death in you, you will surely die. In other words, as slaves of righteousness, we cannot be satisfied to continue to also be slaves to sin. We can't shrug it off as if it's no big deal. We can't pretend like it doesn't exist. We have to be actively involved and being done with it completely in totality. It is part of our profession as a Christian. He says in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. No, in other words, he's speaking in a language that makes sense to us because the things he's talking about here are way beyond our ability to truly, fully, absolutely comprehend them. And don't think he does either. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And that's, that's a, a, a verse that goes right along with, where is it? Verse 13, where he said this, he said, do not go on presenting the members of your body. So this is what he's talking about, is your members of your body, your eyes, your hands, your feet, your mind, your heart, those kinds of things. In other words, you used them as a slave to sin before, but now what you need to do is use those things as a slave to righteousness now. And by doing that, you will glorify God and honor God. In Romans chapter 12, verse, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Remember when we talked about uh, this particular verse uh, in Romans 6, we said that the key to all of it, really, there's a sense in which the mind is the key to all of it because what controls your tongue? Your mind does. What controls your eyes? Your mind does. What controls your ears? Your mind does. So how do we do that? How do we prepare our mind to be in this battle against sin? The Word of God. The Word of God. You've heard, I said this just a few weeks ago, the Word of God. It ain't going to happen without, without the Word of God. You can't, can't it, you will not advance as a Christian without reading the Bible, without studying the Bible, without hearing the Bible preached. It will not happen. It cannot happen. It's an impossibility. Because what it does is it acts in renewing your mind. Because your mind controls, in essence, virtually everything. 
So I just want to encourage you once again this morning to be actively involved in the reading and the study of your word. If you're not doing that, then you're starving yourself. You're not getting the spiritual food that your body, that your spirit absolutely needs, and you will fall away. Or you're not there yet, and you think you are. We would not think for one minute about starving our bodies. I mean, we do sometimes. You know, we fast a little bit here, there, and yar, and, you know, and some of us have lost quite a bit of weight in more recent years because we cut way back on what we eat uh, and that kind of thing. But we would never think about doing that to our body, but we do it to our mind all the time. We starve it. I just finished reading the Bible all the way through, I think for the 30th time. I used to do it once a year, and I got out of the habit. It's taken me almost two years now to do it, but I'm still doing it. And I just want to encourage you guys to be about the study of the Word, be about the reading of the Word. It needs to be part of your regular diet, not something you do once a week or once a month or whatever, but every day. You should not be feeding your mind any less often than you feed your body. And through that, you will see your tongue respond in a way that glorifies God. You'll be about your father's business more. I want to talk this morning about what's called sanctification. He mentions that aspect of being sanctified at the end of verse 19. What sanctification means is to, is to be holy. To be holy, be declared holy. To be perfectly sanctified means to be perfect in holiness. Theologians very often make a distinction between what is called positional sanctification as opposed to progressive sanctification. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you the story again. You've heard it a number of times, most of you, at least once or twice, but maybe a little bit more animated this morning because I want you to really get out of this what is intended. When I was in seminary, my very first theology class, I, I took with a guy named John Gerstner. And most people in this room have never heard of John Gerstner, but some people have. He was one of the most stalwart of defenders of Reformed theology in the 19th century in the United States of America. He was R.C. Sproul's mentor. He was the teacher of R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul, a lot of what he learned, he learned from, from John Gerstner, and he would have told you that on the day that John Gerstner died. He had more influence on him than anybody else did. 
but in this class, and, and, and we were, this was like the second semester that Reformed Seminary was even open, so we were all brand new students in seminary, and we, we start this class with him, and he teaches in a way that I had never been exposed to before, and I've never been exposed to again since then. But he does it all by dialogues. It's not a matter of you going into the room and him writing a bunch of stuff on the board or talking or whatever, and just sitting there taking notes. He asks you a question, and he expects a particular answer from you. And he will, he will rail on you until he gets it, or he just gives up because it's not coming. So after the first night, we're all standing around, and we're trying to figure out where I can sit in class where I'm going to be least likely to be called on him by him. But what he would do is he'd ask the question, and there was only one or two times the whole, it was one of those accelerated two-week things, there was only one or two times that he didn't go all the way through the whole room without ever getting the answer he was looking for. But he would ask the question, and he'd start railing on a particular person, call you by name. And after you made yourself look like an absolute idiot, he would move on to the next. And he would go through the whole room. Well, so by the end of the, end of the time, you know, we're thinking, gosh, where could I possibly sit? It's going to be least likely for him to start. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking probably, you know, as he's looking out, to be right on the right in the front seat because that's the first place most people start. So he's going to do the exact opposite. So I plopped down there. I think it was the last day of class. And time came for questions, and his eyes fell upon me. <laughs> and I'm going, oh my gosh. He said, Mr. Staten, are you sanctified? Now let me tell you, I knew what the right answer was. But before long... I was about to give up the ghost. Because the truth is this, is yes is the right answer to that question. Because I am what is called positionally sanctified. In other words, there is a sense in which where I am right now, I have been declared absolutely pure and holy by God himself. Because of my position in regard to Jesus Christ. Because what God sees when he looks upon me, he doesn't see me as being the dirty, rotten sinner that there's still sin within me that I have been. He sees me through the perfect righteousness, the veil of Christ that is cast over me. That is God's perspective on us as he looks upon us. But there's another aspect of sanctification that we have to keep in mind. And that has to do with that second principle or that second uh, truth that we were talking about. That even though all those things we've said already are true, there is yet 
sin still living and breathing in me. Paul hasn't really addressed that yet. He's going to get that into a lot of detail in chapter 7. That as true as it is that we are sanctified, that we're declared holy right now before Christ, before God, because of what Christ has done for us, there's still another truth that comes into the picture, and that is that sin is still in me. Like I said before, Paul is going to address that in the next chapter. And the one that follows that. As believers, we can never be okay with sin. I think most Christians are. I really do believe this. I think, and this is maybe one of the reasons why maybe sometimes I overemphasize the second truth rather than emphasizing more the first truth. Because I think too many people fall in the pit. The pit of believing that because I'm saved by grace, I don't have to do anything. God has no expectations for me. I can go about my life in any way that I want to. Now, what would Paul say if he were here this morning addressing? He, he would say, how could you possibly come to that absurd, ridiculous, insane conclusion? That it's a tra trap that, let's be honest, we all fall into to some degree. It's one thing to acknowledge the reality that sin is still living and breathing, it's entirely a different thing to allow it to keep you enslaved. We are enslaved to righteousness, not to sin. We live because of what Christ has done for us. But we don't live for ourselves, we live for him. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. We talked about how terrible it is to even comprehend the idea of being enslaved. But Paul says here that we as believers, we're enslaved to God. We're enslaved to righteousness. You understand that's a good kind of slavery? The other, the other kind is horrible, terrible, one of the most awful things you could possibly imagine. But this is something that is good to be enslaved to. If you ever share the gospel with someone, I would encourage you not to forget about Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. So what does sin always bring? Death. It doesn't give anyone life at all. It takes life away. It kills, it enslaves, it imprisons, 
But that's not the end of the story. But. You know, sometimes I hate the word but. And we all do. It all depends on what comes after it <laughs> that determines whether we like it or not. But this is one of the most marvelous, freeing, beautiful, precious buts that has ever been spoken by anyone. The free gift. How much does it cost us? Christ paid it. He paid the price. Eternal life. Wow. Let's be praying this Christmas season that some of, that there will be multitudes of people that receive that gift and come to know that they are saved in Christ Jesus and that one of these days even though we live in this world as we do now and there's a struggle between sin that's still active and, and all of that that one of these days don't you look forward to the day when you'll be done with it and you'll just, you'll just be gone can you imagine never ever sinning again for eternity? And tell me that's not a gift. And tell me that's not the greatest gift you could possibly imagine. Being freed from this bondage that holds us back, that tears us down, that kicks us in the dirt, holds us in the mud. And to live totally, absolutely, completely free from it. The shackles gone. The chains removed. The prison door flung open. You understand there's a sense in which all of that has already taken place for you if indeed you're a believer. But we cannot let sin reign in us. We can't. God deserves better, far better. You've heard me say this before, that, that uh, John MacArthur, even though I disagree with him on certain things, he wrote a book that I read years ago, The Gospel According to Jesus, and in that book he said this, he said, you know, salvation is a free gift. It doesn't cost you anything in a sense. But, in the end, it will cost everything. And what he meant by that is this, is it opens up the door for a new life. And one of the goals of that new life is to die completely to sin, to get rid of it, to be done with it. I wish I had the money to, to be able to give all of you a Christmas gift but don't expect one from us. <laughs> uh, but this. Just to remind you of this. What a gift.
could there be a better one ever? <laughs>